Welcome to the Calvary Cast, a podcast from Calvary Bible Church in Grand Junction, Colorado. At Calvary, we exist for the glory of God, the good of His people, and the Great Commission. Why don't you take the intro today? Hello. <laughs> Hello, let's get started. <laughs> that wasn't quite what I envisioned. Sorry. I'm Jess Miller, lead pastor here at Calvary. I'm here with Graham Parker, associate pastor extraordinaire oh wow <laughs> yeah very good all right man of many talents and wearing different hats <laughs> all that, helpful that was uh, that was but that's why you are the lead pastor because you do the best intros to our that's podcast. right yeah. yeah yeah that's part of my gifting I'm part of your gifting so everybody welcome to the calvary cast we're doing well wanted to make a little announcement in case you haven't all noticed our normal announcer executive producer extraordinaire bill is no longer with us that does not mean he has yeah <laughs> let's clarify he has not died he's alive and well he's alive and well he's just not producing the podcast anymore and we miss him immensely as you all do because it is not nearly as good or funny as it used to be but bill is the man behind the microphone that started this whole thing yeah. and we are very appreciative to him and for that in the spirit of uh all great people who move on to better product products, projects, things like that. We have made up a little montage like they play for people in the Oscars or something. So, or when they died. But they died, he but didn't die. He did not die. So okay. to Bill, here you go, man. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Calvary Cast, a podcast from Calvary Bible Church in Grand Junction, Colorado. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Calvary Cast. I am joined by Graham and Jess. How are you guys doing today? Good. Let's say hi to our live virtual, hello, live studio. virtual right, studio audience. Here? Let's see. Oh, oh man, there's nobody. <laughs> the breathing has driven them away. So, guys. Why are we doing a podcast? You, you know, though. <laughs> oh, Bill, you ruined us. Come on. You know, though, I do have a clip of something that Jess said last week. That's <laughs> the wrong clip. Of course, I am your super duper executive producer, <laughs> Bill Tarleton. <laughs> hello, hello. Welcome to Cavalry Cast Masterpiece Social Hour. I am your host, Sir William Reginald Tarleton V, and I am joined by lead rector, Jess Miller, and associate rector, Graham Parker. <laughs> How are you doing today, gentlemen? Phenomenal. Uh, <laughs> Phenomenal. I have a sudden urge to go to the loo all of a sudden. <laughs> yo, yo, what up? This is Mixmaster MC T-Bone, and I'm joined by my pastor homies G-Slice and Crazy Left Eye Just Dog. What up, fools? What set you repping? What up? Oh, <laughs> what up, what up? What up? What is up? What's your name? B-Dog? <laughs> Me? No, I'm uh, MC. And I am your melancholy host, Bill Tarleton. <laughs> 
melancholy. I am. I'm really Why are melancholy, you melancholy today? Bill? Because today's topic <laughs> is a sad one. It's about apostasy. <laughs> falling away. <laughs> am I both in my flesh and my spirit at the same time? Is my flesh, is it doing things that my spirit says not to do? And my spirit is wanting to do things my flesh doesn't want to do? Is my mind my spirit or is my mind my flesh or is it both? <laughs> Whose voice am I hearing in my head right now? Do <laughs> deaf people hear their own voice in their head? Do I even know what I'm saying right now? I'm really flummoxed. Hello, <laughs> welcome to another episode of the Calvary Cast. I am your grand poobah, Bill Tarleton. <laughs> I am your audio architect, Bill Tarleton. <laughs> Welcome to the game show. It's called Name That Sound. Brought to you by Tide Pods. <laughs> nice and crunchy. <laughs> Don't eat too many. <laughs> They're not good for you. <laughs> Howdy, partners. This is Wild Bill. Now I'm joined by my outlaw gang, the Calvary Crooks. Yeah! <laughs> I'm joined by lead padre Jess Miller, Jesse James Miller, and associate gunslinger Graham Parker. Today we're gonna talk about being in our gang. Come be in our gang, guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! I think all our people are rightly confused. <laughs> Bing! <laughs> there we go. We miss you, Bill. Wow, that is good. When yep. you compile all that, we see what we're missing I from know. our executive and, uh, producer. People can listen to that and go, it was eminently more funny. Yeah, no wonder our listens have gone down. We're tracking our listens a little bit. Yeah, it's like down. zero. Yeah. Yeah. So, Bill, we miss you, as does everyone else. That's and right. if you, in case you haven't listened to the prior funny, better episodes, you can go back and listen to those at another time. Yeah, until now, you just have to listen to our boringness and our failed attempts at humor your failed attempts at an introduction to a podcast yeah my just let's jump right in and just yeah. get startedness so in the sake of that let's do that let's just jump right in and start all right let's do a long awkward pause like we used to just in honor of in bill. honor of bill a long awkward who pause. is alive and well yeah who's alive but and just well. not doing the podcast right exactly was that long enough and awkward enough i was gonna go a little bit longer but oh. that's okay i don't like silence anyway, okay let's talk about what we're talking about we are Discussing a book, In My Place Condemned He Stood, Celebrating the Glory of the Atonement, ed, uh, essays by J.I. Packer and Mark Dever. And uh, we are in chapter two this time. We are kind of using that as a springboard. Right. And this chapter is called The Logic of Atonement, of Penal Substitutionary Atonement. What did the cross achieve? Yeah, so... So we will probably do this in two weeks because this was a really long chapter. To this go was the heaviest thing I've read in a while. Yeah, it is. And I think if we recommended this book last week, we still recommend it. But with the caveat that you'll have to work at this yep. book, right? I mean, it's not something that's... Um, I mean, we do only read comic books and stuff. So that means yeah, right. anything so, above that is a little difficult. But Yeah, exactly. So if you're like us in that, then this <laughs> will. So, But you do. You have, to, you have to think about what he's saying. You have to work through it. And I think that's good. And that's an yes. important part of developing our brains and yes. our theological brains as well. And, and the other thing, too, like when we read things that are hard for us to wrap. Like, so for me, I read this chapter and then I went back and reviewed it again, understood it better after I went back and reviewed it. And uh, I was like, wow, I, I have a better understanding 
of penal substitutionary atonement now. Yeah, and that's what we want to be doing anyway. Because we, like we talked about last week, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel, one of the elements of the gospel is that Christ died for our sins. And when we're talking about the atonement and um, we're asking that question, what did Christ do at the cross? And we want to think deeply about that and think constantly about that. And, um, and uh, understand that this is something that is deep and profound and um, somewhat mysterious, which is what we'll yeah. talk about in just a few minutes. And that's where he, he starts this chapter. So he addresses, he has essentially four different points that he's trying to, trying to make. And he starts with the uh, talking about logic and mystery and attempts to rationalize uh, the idea of a penal substitutionary atonement. Right. And some of that, what that leads to and what he brings us out is um, what we would call liberal theology that has drifted away from the Bible's teaching about the atonement because they're trying to rationalize through things and it doesn't sound right to them. I mean, if we're just, you know, maybe oversimplifying this very complicated issue, but it's like they read things in the Bible or they've been taught things that are clearly what the Bible teaches about the atonement or maybe anything else. They don't like the way that sounds. They rationalize things that doesn't seem rational to them. Uh, It conflicts with what they think they see in the world or whatever it is. And so they make changes to it or adapt it. And with that too, it, it, so and it's, they don't like what they hear. It's also, uh, we are finite trying to understand the infinite and so when it comes to things like penal substitutionary atonement, there are just things we can't wrap our minds around. Right. And so that's when we're, where we run into this issue of rationalization, trying to rationalize that which cannot be fully and completely understood in every aspect of it. Right. And that always leads us to problems. So where we're going to go in a minute is we're going to talk, the main point of where he's going in the chapter is substitutionary, p- pen, what we call penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, the word penal coming, you know, we get the idea of that with um, penalty, right? Paying a penalty. Right. And then uh, substitution in our place. And that's, you know, they're, they're, uh, the book is called In My Place Condemned He Stood. Of course, that's a line taken from, a phrase taken from uh, the song. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Starts out, man of sorrows. Yeah. What a name. You should so, keep singing. People are going to enjoy that. Yeah. Well, you know, I've been trying to get on the music team, and you won't <laughs> let me on. So for good maybe reason. if I if you're I you're all that thankful here, for that, the audience will demand a place for me up there. But no, that's it. Uh, but the idea of in my place, that substitution, right. in my place, condemned, condemned would have to do with the penalty. He was bearing the the penalty, paying the penalty for our sins. And so, um, and the scriptures teach us really clearly, but now to back up before he gets that, he lays that groundwork with what you're talking about with the idea of whenever we, um, approach scripture and we're going to talk about something or study something or come to conclusions about, let's say the atonement and the nature of it, there's an element in theology of mystery, right? But we've got to be careful with this. So let me explain, I think what we mean by mystery Mystery doesn't mean that we can't know something or understand it. It means, though, that there are elements of it that we'll never fully be able to wrap our minds around, right? So 
God is, and you brought this out, God is an infinite, infinite in his being. So when we study about God, because we're finite, and in addition to that, we're fallen. So we're fallen and we're finite. So there are elements of theology and God that we'll never fully comprehend. But the reason I say we got to be careful with that is because that can get people to just throw up their arms and say, then it really doesn't matter. Right. Right. All I need to know is he did die for my sin. I don't need to explore this at all or come to conclusions about what it's saying or, um, you know, we can become very postmodern or thinking like, well, then what's true for you is true for me. It doesn't really it's matter. A, the irrelevance. It's really irrelevant. Let's just focus on what we need to focus on. I think that can be the route we go. But that isn't the case. We need to draw conclusions the best we can. And what he tries to lay out is that Scripture gives us language, gives us understanding, gives us pictures that we can draw conclusions, like the fact that Christ went to the cross in my place as a substitute to pay my, the price for my sins and paid my penalty. We get enough from Scripture to make that declaration, even though the what he uses, the word he uses, the mechanics of it, stretch our brains mm, yeah. beyond what we can fully comprehend. Does that make sense? Yeah, and we see, to, just to add on to that, like we see mystery throughout the Scripture, and, and Paul even talks about this in Ephesians 3. He talks a mystery, uh, again, because it is, is something that was hidden and then is revealed, uh, more clearly, but still not fully understood. So he talks about the mystery of the church, something that was hidden and is now revealed. So the same thing with, with the atonement. There are elements that are still hidden to us, in a sense. Yeah. Is, that, is that right? H- hidden or, or yeah, I, I, I guess that would be... Ca- in some things he hasn't revealed. We gotta, we've right. got to assume and understand that there are things he's told us that we need to know right? and that we should know, and then there's things that we don't. And people, with any area of salvation or with any area of theology, we come across this. Yes. So, for, uh, you know, the examples would be found in the Trinity themselves. When we study theology proper, we talk about the Trinity, mm-hmm. Father, Son, Spirit, co-equal in their being and, and nature and, and not. And yet three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, we can't fully um, wrap our our minds around that, right. but we can declare it to be true. Why? Because the Bible teaches it and yep. we can piece together verses that very clearly teach that. Right. Or the incarnation. Wow. You know, the son of God became flesh. Um, and, and he was, he was the son of God. So, uh, still existing as the son of God, e- eternal and infinite. And yet, in flesh, and even as a, a line I just read the other day talking about the fact that he, as an infant, was still upholding the universe by the word of his power in his being as Son of God. And you have the, what, what theologians call the hypostatic union, the divine nature, the human nature, all in one person, right? One one person, right. not two people. How, how can that be? How can that be, right? right? So... So these these are mysteries, and when we embrace theology and scripture, we have to be comfortable with that. And some things we just can't answer, um, and so we've just got to become comfortable with that. But we take the main point is yes. what he's trying to show is, but we take what we've been given. Yeah, I think I'm summarizing mm-hmm. what he's saying here. We take what we be given, given, and we can draw conclusions from that and make 
assertions about that and build a theology around that, even though everything in it we can't comprehend. He, um, <clears throat> if I can find the find the quote, uh, he talks about how do we come to know anything in the Bible? Um, you know, not through rationalization, not through uh, man's experience or through natural theology, but we come to know it through faith. And there is in that there. When I when I'm living and believing by faith, it doesn't ra- always rationalize out to make sense. You know, uh, you think about even in terms of of uh, suffering, like how can I rejoice in suffering rationally? That doesn't make any sense. But when I take by faith what God has said to that that this is for His glory and for my good, I can take that by faith and and live in a way that pleases Him. So when it comes to any theological thing, when it comes to penal substitutionary atonement. We take it by by faith. And it, that starts from the very beginning. The author of Hebrews brings us out. This idea, this element of just taking the revelation we have by faith, even though we couldn't understand or explain the mechanics of all of it, begins with creation. You have to believe that God created the world that we see now. He created it out of nothing in a way that's totally inexplicable to us. Right? He brought out of nothing. Right everything that there is and that's that's inexplicable to us but the christian life is one of faith we trust what god has revealed to us we believe it and we walk by faith one other thing on this that and he he makes this this uh this statement he says what makes it a mystery talking about penal substitutionary atonement is that creatures like ourselves can comprehend it only in part to say this does not open the door to skepticism for our knowledge of divine realities, like our knowledge of each other, is a genuine knowledge expressed in notions which, so far as they go, are true. But it does close the door against rationalism, in the sense of theorizing that claims to explain with finality any aspect of God's way of existing and working. And with that, it alerts us to the fact that the presence in our theology, and this is a key point, the fact that the presence in our theology of unsolved problems is not necessarily a reflection on the truth or adequacy of our thoughts. Inadequate and untrue theories do, of course, exist. And he says one little later on, one thing Christians know by faith is that they know only in part. Yeah. So I think the point of all of that is to say, even when we can't fully understand something in theology, it does not mean that it's not true, and it does not mean that we have to reduce it to something that is completely comprehensible by man and thereby uh, eliminate the the mystery of it. Yeah. Um, rather, and that's the danger. And that's that. the danger. Yeah. And I think with Paul, the who was a theologian himself, right? Didn't he say Romans eleven verse thirty three? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! Uh, for who has known the mind of the Lord, who or who has been His counselor? And I think, you know, that that's significant because that comes at the end of, of Romans 9, 10, 11, where Paul is answering the question of the Jew, which is, has God's covenant promises to them failed? I don't understand why, if Jesus is the Messiah, why is there all Jews rejecting him virtually except for a handful? And he's explaining the doctrine, you know, of God's election through that and how th- God's using the 
how he hardened the heart of the Israelites and he's using that to bring in the Gentiles and he's talking about all this and he gets to the point where it's just like the depth of the riches and wisdom of God. I mean, it's it's his unsearchable judgments and inscrutable ways. I mean, we get to the point where, and, and this is when I, when we started in uh, systematic theology, I told everybody, when we come to these places where we see what it says, we see what it tells us, yet we can't wrap our minds around all the mechanics of it, then that is designed to move us to worship because that in Romans eleven thirty three that's a doxology yeah that's an outbreaking of praise to God for His glory right and that is how what our response is to be mystery moves us to worship it's what it, it should, should yes it yeah. really should because then we go God you are so great and I can't comprehend you and I praise you that I don't know everything about you yeah. <laughs> it shouldn't move us to skepticism and it shouldn't move us to <laughs> rationalism it should move us to worship yeah. And uh, into doxology. We are getting all kinds of calls and texts here in the uh, podcast studio today. We got people calling us and texting us left and right, trying to chime in with this conversation. Uh, call one eight hundred the Calvary Cast <laughs> yeah, if you yeah. want to join in too. Uh, <laughs> anyway, let's move on. Uh, so, so we've we've tried to address this this idea of mystery in theology. Yeah. Mystery becomes penal substitutionary atonement. Last time we talked about propitiation, the averting of God's wrath uh, through the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, let's talk now about substitution. Yeah. What is substitution? So when we think about substitution is you just think about it in basic terms, somebody standing in place of the other, somebody doing something for someone else that that other person was to do but they couldn't or didn't or whatever, and somebody stands in their place. We see it all over the place. When we grew up in school, we had substitute teachers. Oh, good right? example. Right? And that was a great day. Well, you were homeschooled. <clears throat> I was so. home. I never had a substitute so, no, teacher. No, it was always your mom. <laughs> but like I can tell you as a public school kid, uh, when you'd walk in, you had a substitute. It was usually a happy day because you knew we could take advantage of that. That's right. That teacher and... <laughs> I, I drive them I, crazy. I don't know much about that. I would never be a substitute teacher, so I have my mad respect for them. Because you grievously antagonized them, you know what they went through. Yeah, I mean that was that's just the the duty of all public school children is. Yeah, to, but some are worse than others, and I'm assuming you were the worst. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I'm the best judge of that. <laughs> Probably not. Okay, so anyway, substitution. In this chapter, and he talks about some people don't like the idea of substitution. Mm-hmm. They rather like the idea of of uh, a representative. Okay, is that what he talks about? I think in here. Well, let's think. Of, let's think even even in simpler terms. So, substitution could create some problems with some people. Like if you believe in personal accountability. Um, in other words, if you've done wrong. And when we think about, so let's just, let's say this real quick. When we think about substitutionary atonement, we're thinking about Jesus going to the cross for us. So that word we use in English, for, is very important. He's going in our place or in our stead. Okay, he's going to go die for our sins, 1 Corinthians 15. He's going to, he's going to, you know, pay the penalty for our sins. And so that's where this idea of substitution, we deserved the death but Christ went in our place so the nature of the cross and the atonement is substitutionary and um, and so that's when we're dealing with substitution that's what we're really getting in the heart of he was in our place 
in um, in our in our stead. So so people do wrestle with that. Um, some people come to uh, some theologians of the past and maybe even present come to some other conclusions about the the nature of the atonement and Jesus on the cross. For instance, some will say, well, he was there as an example to us. Mm. He wasn't substituting anything for us. He was there dying, and that's an example to us. That should move us to the heart of, uh, of, heart of love, mm. and then we reach out in love to others. Well, the thing about that statement is there is some truth in that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see the love of God and that sh- in Christ dying on that cross, and that should compel us to die or to, to give our lives for other people and, and so forth. Others see it as a—that uh, this was the Christus Victor um, idea of the cross, where on the cross he was defeating demonic activity and defeating the devil. He was our, our David— against Goliath and we were the Israelites standing on the sidelines watching him go defeat Goliath for us and defeating spiritual forces well the thing about that is that's a v- absolutely true statement uh there there or there's truth in it it's part of the truth just not the whole truth right and some people view these things as the ends of the end of substitution that's right what it was because they struggle with the fact of Christ being there dying in our place for us and specifically when it gets to the aspect of the penalty for sin it's the same thing we encounter when we talked about propitiation they don't like the idea of god's wrath uh his anger against sin they don't like the idea of and they cannot reconcile a loving god having righteous wrath for sin they cannot reconcile god demanding a price be paid before a person can be forgiven and saved they don't like that. They, the, actually, they lean more towards the God of Islam, to, to Allah, because Allah is referred to as the all-forgiving one. And Allah doesn't need, as far as my understanding of, of Islam, which is limited, but I've read about it and, and that, did some research into this, they don't have an atonement. Um, a person is atoned for by their own works, essentially, and they do enough, and then and then Allah in the end will judge that. And if they've done enough good works as opposed to the to their bad, then they 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 get in because He's forgiving. It's in His nature. And right? That's different, even than say like Roman Catholicism, which they do have an atonement, but you have to add to the atonement. Right. Yes. You know, it, it's Christ plus. Yeah, and it wasn't all satisfying. That's why right. why we need purgatory. Right. Right. Um, I, I just want to return for a second again to this idea where some people replace substitution with the idea of, of represent representation. And, uh, because Packer talks about this quite a bit and he defines representation. He said, representation is said to mean the fact of standing for, or in place of some other thing or person, especially with a right or authority to act on their account. Substitution of one thing, uh, and then he defines substitution of one thing or person for another. And then he, he asked the question, uh, why do some people want to use the term representation in place of substitution? And he said that for, for some people, it's a, out of a fear uh, that to think of Christ dying for us as our substitute obscures his call to us to die and rise in him and with him. So in a sense, they almost want this idea of, uh, they, they see a command where, where uh, we're, we died with Christ, we rise with him, and they, and they want to add that that's something that they have to do, and they're trying to rationalize it. So in order, 
uh, Christ can't be their substitute dying for them and rising for them. So rather, he's just a representative in their place of that. Mm-hmm. And that, that creates some real problems. Uh, and then he quotes, uh, again, Packer quotes a, a man named uh, Denny, James Denny. And he, ha- he has a longer quote, but he, he in the middle of the quote, he says this. He says, but the fundamental fact of the situation is that to begin with, Christ is not ours and we are not one with him. We are without Christ. A representative not produced by us, but given to us, not chosen by us, but the elect of God, is not a representative at all in the first institute, but a substitute. So the idea is you cannot replace these things. Uh, we Christ is our representative because he is our substitute. You can't have him being a representative right. without being a substitute. And again, they're getting part of the truth. Right. Yeah, part of it. They're getting part of the truth. They're just not getting all of the truth of what's revealed to us about the nature of substitution. So, um, look, should we just read, let's read a few verses that I think talk about substitution and then we'll probably wrap it up for this week and jump back in next week. But there, uh, there are several prepositions in the Greek language that help us understand the nature of substitution. And they're represented in these verses here that I'm using. And usually you'll see this as translated as for in our Bible. But we could act, we could just as easily say in place of or instead of, okay? So Matthew 20, 28, for instance, um, Jesus said, Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for or in place of many. So he's giving, here it is, he's substituting his life as a ransom for the others, okay? And they receive the forgiveness of sins and everything from that. 1 Corinthians 15, we already made mention of it, but I'll just say it again. He says, Christ died for our sins as a substitute for our sins, right? In place of. Um, Galatians 1.3. Let me find that quickly here. I should have had these marked off. Yeah, come on. What kind of podcaster are you? He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who, the Lord Jesus Christ now, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Very clearly the idea of substitution for us or in our place. And then in chapter 2, verse 20, it gets very personal and gives the uh, the Christian... uh, a way to make this very personal, this idea of substitutionary atonement for me. He says, I have have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, that has real implications, and he brings that out in this chapter later on. But the idea that when a Christian comes to faith in Christ, and he reads that go- the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He, I think, has permission now to see Christ living for him or her personally and dying for him or her personally. It's like he said in John chapter 10, uh, I know my sheep. And, uh, and, that, and, and that doesn't just include those disciples there because he says, I have sheep that aren't of this fold. I got to bring them in also. And then he, he looked at those men that, that were arguing with him, and he said, well, he, first of all, he said, I lay down my life for the sheep, okay? And I know my sheep. And he said to them, you are not my sheep. 
That has massive implications for how we understand the atonement and the nature of substitution was personal. Jesus knew the ones for whom he was going to the cross. And there is some very particular language in that. And Paul gives us permission to see that in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. How does he know that he was one that Christ went to the cross for? Well, because he believes in Christ, right? He's trusting in him and he knows he's received that eternal life from him. So as he reads into scripture, he can read back into it himself, Christ going for him as a substitute, right? So it's really important. But it's not just New Testament. We read this idea of substitution. It's Old Testament as well. In Isaiah 53, um, this the whole passage is about a prophecy about the one who would come bearing the sins of his people. And um, he says in verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. What would that mean other than uh, penalty? Right. How would you interpret that other than he bore the sin of many? Right. That he took upon himself their sins and makes intercession for the transgressors. To me, that's substitution. Where and when did he do that? At the cross. It was in our place as a substitution, bearing our penalty. That's where we say it's penal substitutionary atonement. That was the nature of the atonement. Well, we will continue this discussion on the atonement. Uh, next week, we'll finish up this, this chapter that we were discussing this week. Uh, if you ever have questions, again, we love to hear from you. You can always email us at thecalvarycast at gmail.com. Or if you are in our church, uh, just walk up and talk to us on a Sunday morning or any other time throughout the week. Give us a call, shoot us a text. We'd love to hear with you and uh, discuss what we've been discussing uh, on this podcast. Until next time.